working our way through the life of Christ, using the life of Christ A through Z system, as most of you know. And we are in letter M today. Now, two weeks ago, the last time I was here, we looked at the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. M stands for Marvelous Messages, and it goes uh, in tandem with the next letter, N, which means nature neutralized. The vast majority of the ministry of Christ is what uh, scholars call the Great Galilean ministry. Galilee was the northern region by the lake, right, where the fishermen were. And during that 18 months or so, Betty, Christ tried to get the word as widely as possible to the nation of Israel, the folks that had the Old Testament scriptures and the prophetic uh, word about him and his ministry. Jesus tried to get the word to that nation as widely as possible through marvelous messages, including the Sermon on the Mount. Now watch this. Uh, Sherry, the Sermon on the Mount is so good, he didn't just preach it once. He preached that same message hundreds of times during the Great Galilean ministry. You, you're going to find the longest uh, form of the Sermon on the Mount that we have in Scripture in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You're also going to see some of the same basic content, Chris, in Luke chapter 6, but that's not, clearly in a different occasion, in a different setting. So we're looking at today, last time I was here, and then next week, uh, three aspects of the Sermon on the Mount because it's functioning at, under M in the life of Christ, A through Z. M, marvelous messages that were his stump speech, his presentation to the nation of Israel, and you learn about the dynamics of salvation and spirituality straight Peg, how great is this? Straight from Jesus himself, he's going to tell you today in Matthew 6 what true spirituality is really all about. And it's not just about going to church or just about praying or just about reading your Bible. Uh, that's M. N, nature neutralized, was big miracles in front of large groups so he could authenticate he was the Messiah, he was from heaven, he was the legitimate authority to tell you what the Old Testament meant, because the Old Testament teaching had been hijacked by the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and they had totally distorted it, and they were ripping people off in the temple to make money. And so he is presenting himself in M and N, the great Galilean ministry, the marvelous messages uh, like the content we find in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and through miracles that validate his claims, right? Now, two weeks ago, we looked at the theological purpose statement of the Sermon on the Mount, and we summarized Matthew five seventeen through 20 as the most unreligious thing anyone has ever said. Do you know who said the most unreligious thing anyone has ever said? Do you know who? You ready? That'd be Nietzsche, right? No, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, you look at that acronym, Dustin, I know you're thinking, how do I pronounce that? How do I remember that? It's, since I made it up, I get to decide how you pronounce it. Timutehes, okay, is the most unreligious thing anyone has ever said. It was said by Jesus, and he says it when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes and the Pharisees were the most religious people in first century Judaism, outwardly. My opinion, they're probably the most religiously righteous, outwardly religiously righteous people of all time. And he just flat slaps that down and says, unless your righteousness exceeds the best 
religious righteousness people can crank out, you're not going to get to enter the kingdom of heaven. And you might say, well, who's going to make it then? Just like Jesus said, it's harder for a camel to go through the avenue than for a rich person to go to heaven. And they say, well, who's going to go to heaven then? I thought all the rich people were blessed because they were close to you. That's why they got their money. Jesus says, with men, that's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Because salvation, the righteousness you need to get to heaven, isn't yours. It's his. It's not something that we achieve. Salvation is not something we can achieve. It's something we must receive. If righteousness came through the law, obeying rules, then Christ died needlessly, Galatians says. So salvation is not based on what we do for Christ. It's based on what Christ has done for us. It's by God's grace through faith. Faith is active, receptive trust. It's a rational act. It's not a meritorious work. And Paul himself, one of the greatest Pharisees of all time, who realized he was dead, spiritually in dead good works that couldn't possibly get him to heaven. He'd been dedicated to climbing the ladder of the law to get to heaven. It can't work. He says in his personal testimony in Philippians 3 that I've considered all that stuff worthless in light of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, having a righteousness not of my own derived from the law, that but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes directly from God on the basis of so that's what we looked at last time, and we ended up with a very important question. Who gets the credit for your salvation? In your own little mind, or big mind, right? Uh, who gets the credit for your salvation? What I'm really saying is, who are you trusting in to save you? And I would say there are three possible options. A lot of Americans think that Christianity teaches that we're just more religious and more righteous than other people are, and that's why we think we're going to heaven, and they kind of resent that. And I kind of resent them thinking that's what we think, because it's not what we think. Uh, we go to heaven not because Christians are perfect, but because we've trusted in a perfect Savior. But trust me, many Americans think good people go to hell, uh, go, go to heaven, bad people go to hell. Better get that right. Uh, I've got a friend who I'm witnessing to regularly who's totally convinced uh, he's such a good guy now, he deserves to go to heaven. And that's not going to fly. Uh, some of the fringe groups, I'm thinking Jehovah's Witnesses as an example, and many liberal Christians who don't really believe that Christ died for our sins on the cross, don't believe in literal resurrection, they'll say, Jesus did something, like was a virtuous martyr to show us the example we should follow that would be good enough to earn our way to heaven, but we got to do the rest. In fact, one group says we're saved by grace. Grace means unmerited favor, but not to them. We're saved by grace after all we can do. That's not grace. That's merit. That's works. And Jamie, you're one of the most... Jamie and Carson were the... Uh, even though Carson spells her name wrong. Uh, actually, she spells it right. Everybody else has it wrong. Uh, they're the heroes of the week because here they are uh, loving the Lord, loving the church, loving their parents, loving everything that's uh, good and proper. Uh, great athletes uh, excel in school. I love it. But not even Jamie or Carson can be good enough to go to heaven. And it's not that Jesus did some, and now if we do the rest, we'll be able to save ourselves. The The scandal of the gospel is that we're sinners, and people don't like that, especially in this culture, totally unable to save ourselves. You know, the Pharisees were trusting in what Hebrews 6 calls dead works. Dead works are good deeds you're doing to try to earn your way to heaven because thanks, God, for sending Jesus, but I don't really need that. Or thanks for sending him, and I appreciate him giving me a couple of steps up the ladder, but I know I've got to do the rest myself, and here it goes. Watch me. 
Ain't I great, right? Um, you know, at the end of the crucifixion, the atonement, Jesus says, it is finished. That's three words in English. It's one word in Greek. It means paid in full. Tetastai. Paid in full, right? Mission accomplished. And so as Calvin said, saving faith is the empty hand that receives the merits of Christ, that rests in the merits of Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. So here's our invitation. We're not going to sing just as I am 18 times and get a psychological thing working for you. If you've never trusted Christ alone, you can do that right where you sit. That's how Cornelius got uh, saved in Acts 10. That's how I got saved in the back of a Baptist revival before I was told I had to sign a card and do other things, which I did, but that was the effect of salvation. And the fact that at that point I thought preachers always know what they're talking about. He told me I had to walk the aisle and sign a card, so I did that. I've since found out, after 36 years of being in the ministry, preachers aren't always right about everything, even though I usually am, so don't assume I'm wrong because it doesn't happen very often. That's what we saw last week. Today we're going to look at a second part of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to spend three weeks in the marvelous messages uh, exemplified by the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to call this the heart of true spirituality, better known as T-Hots, okay? We're going to look at the heart of true spirituality, and the question we're going to ask and answer based on what Jesus teaches us here is, who do you expect to get credit from? Who do you expect to get praise, I should say from, not for, uh, praise for your good works? Who do you, are you trying to impress somebody? Are you expecting people to tell you how great you are all the time? That is not a biblical motivator. That will lead you to burnout or anger because your expectations won't always be met. Everybody won't see how great you are. And if you're doing the good things you do for wrong reasons, that's bad good works. Those are, the, those are dead works. Uh, why do you do the good things you do? We're going to think about that today. But first, let's pray we'll be teachable to God's word, and as we do that, and uh, Anthony, I'm going to ask you to do that in a minute, uh, pray those, for those also that protect our right to do this. There are a lot of places in the world you can't do this openly, like all the churches in Duncan are doing it today, uh, thinking of our military and our peace officers and our firefighters. So, Anthony, pray for us in that direction, okay? <clears throat> Thank you, Anthony. You know, we like to warm up your capacity for abstract thought. I've only, you have to look at this quick. If you blink, you're going to miss it. Before we dive into the meat of the word, we want to warm up your capacity for abstract thought. This was a, uh, a sign, I think it's a legit sign, at the Indian Hills Community Center. It looks like someplace maybe uh, Scott and Nancy have been recently, except it's not as white right now, is it? Uh, but it will get there. Ban pre-shredded cheese. Make America great. Again, and for those of you listening on the World Wide Web, great in that context is spelled G-R-A-T-E, not G-R-E-A-T. And I didn't think I was even going to get anything but kind of a murmuring, ugh, from that. So just so you know what I was talking about, that's what a greater, church cheese greater is, you know. So make America great, great again, right? Now, we're going to look at verses 1 through 18, and then we're going to compare the first verse in that passage was something Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. But the structure here is important. Uh, verse 1 of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're looking at Matthew 6, 1 through 18, is the big principle. And then he gives three examples of applying the principle. Beware of practicing your righteousness 
before people. Most of the translations have men there. But the, uh, the masculine specific Greek word, this is written in Greek, is aner. The female specific noun is gune. But the generic word for people is anthropos. We get anthropology from it. This is anthropoi, plural. It means people. This is Nancy as much as Scott. Uh, this is Janet as much as Dr. Deeg. Beware of practicing your righteousness before people, male or female, to be noticed by them. That's not a correct motivation for coming to church, coming to prayer meeting, being a Sunday school teacher, doing religious things or anything. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. And we're going to get that big principle uh, applied to giving, praying, and fasting. Now, another way you can analyze that in your head, I like to think of verse 1 as like an umbrella statement because everything else functions under the umbrella. So the big principle is don't do good things for selfish, self-promoting reasons, which is an occupational hazard for people who get a paycheck for being clergymen because we got to you know, jump through enough hoops in front of you and make you think we're earning our paycheck. Fortunately, TBF doesn't force us to do stuff like that. After 30 years, they kind of trust that I'm trying to do the right thing, whether or not they see me do it or not. <clears throat> Quite often, I do stuff way under the radar on purpose because I don't want to be tempted to just try to be, to just impress you on Sunday mornings like I always do, right? Ha-ha. Another way to break that down is this way. Big principle is don't do the good things you do to impress people. Do it to please God. And that applies Oh, you might say, well, at least it only applies to giving, praying, and fasting, right? Everything else, no, applies to everything. He's giving you three specific examples to apply the point, right? Now look at verse 1 again. This is our topic statement. It's our controlling statement. It's our umbrella statement. And in this one statement, angel, Jesus systematically dismantles the whole religious system of salvation by obedience to the law, which the Pharisees were peddling, and dismantles the whole concept that spirituality is about doing outward acts, especially those that are impressive to human eyes. It just doesn't work that way. Now, notice he says, and by the way, Sermon on the Mount is discipleship truth for the believers who are listening and hardcore pre-evangelism convicting truth to those who weren't believers. If you're sitting there honestly, you can't do this stuff he says in the Sermon on the Mount, unless you get a lot of divine help, and even believers find the challenges uh, extremely difficult to consistently apply, because this is hardcore spirituality. But uh, you, you can do that, and reward is something that has to do with, like, medals in the military. I never served in the active military. I was one year ROTC, University of Houston, uh, in Army recon version, which was the tough, you had to do actually do pull-ups and stuff and shoot guns. And uh, as I like to say, we had zero terror attacks that year. So you're welcome. But I was never in the active military. I would not compare what I did uh, a couple afternoons a, a, a week to, come to anything that the people actually in active service did. But I understand in the... Uh, well, actually, I got a medal. I got a medal in ROTC, Army, an Army medal, I was actually a sharpshooter. First time I ever, ever really fired a weapon was in Army R2C, and you had, uh, what was it? You had three levels, an expert, sharpshooter, and marksman. Marksman was the, the less best. Sharpshooter was second. Expert was three. I was actually bred it out as a sharpshooter <laughs> for a guy with only one eye that works. That's pretty amazing. I got to shoot left-handed, you know. 
uh, yeah, so I was pretty proud of that, and uh, I guess I just lost my reward for it. But <laughs> uh, reward is kind of like medals in the military. Uh, everybody who serves honorably gets an honorable discharge, has served their country. We thank, thank you for your service. You know, Homer Cox is not here today, actually served in the Army and the Air Force. He was so good, two different services wanted him. So that was, that's pretty strong there, Krista, okay? He's a double vet, you might say. But I'm sure Homer has some medals, good conduct medals and other things. My dad had a couple of medals. He served in World War II. Medals are kind of like rewards. In fact, this word for reward, mythos in the Greek, is usually translated a wage. It's compensation for something you've done. You don't necessarily thank your employer for giving you your paycheck, although you probably should just to be a nice person, but you've earned that. It's something you've earned. And although some people miss this doctrine entirely or water it down, this is a very important doctrine taught by Jesus and Paul and all over the place. Salvation is always by God's grace through faith alone and Christ alone, but for the set of believers, there will be an evaluation of the fruit of our Christian lives, and the more fruit the more commendation, the more medals, that, like a letter jacket. When you play sports, you play, get enough game time, you get a letter jacket. Uh, there'll be different levels of reward. And if you think only ordained ministers are going to be up there, I think a lot of us will be down here somewhere, actually, because uh, it's actually tempting to do a lot of the stuff we do for the wrong reasons. You've got to be aware of that. Uh, I'm not a psychologist, but I think a lot of people that burn out, there's a lot of burnout in American evangelical pulpit ministries, is because they're getting too hung up on trying to impress everybody, you know, or they're in an environment that insists they do that, and it's a killer over time. Um, but anyway, and also, by the way, there's, Jesus also talks about, in Matthew 23, the scribes and the Pharisees that are so self-righteously uh, confusing the nation and rejecting him. There'll be different levels uh, of condemnation in... Uh, in future judgment, but there's going to be levels of commendation based on what we've done. Big distinction. Romans 4, 5 says, but to the one who does not work, but who believes in Christ, who justifies the ungodly, that ungodly person that trusts in Christ, not by their works, is declared righteous. That's how salvation works. But rewards work like this. Revelation 22, 12. It's like Jesus just can't wait to give Steve his rewards. Can't just, can't wait to give Meg and Debbie their rewards. In Revelation 22, 12, one of the last times Jesus has quoted the Bible, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming suddenly, and my reward is with me to give to every man. That's anthropos. What does that mean? People, believers, male or female, sharing as much as Ben. To give, my reward's with me to give every person, meaning believer, according to what he or she has done. Salvation is not a reward. It's a gift. It's a charismata. It's a gift. Rewards, misthos, or misthoi, plural, are commendation, medals, as it were, crowns that we get based on what we have done, doing the right thing for the right reason. We could go through the distinction if we had more time, but... Uh, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. That's Titus 3, talking about salvation. Revelation 22, 12 says, rewards are based on according to what you have done as a Christian, right? There's no condemnation for any Christian. We're justified by faith. We, faith, we have peace with God, Romans says repeatedly. But 1 Corinthians 3 says, every man's work will be examined to determine whether or not and how much reward and commendation you get. Uh, one of my teachers at seminary said, 
the uh, event where Christ gives out rewards to believers. It's kind of like a graduation ceremony. Everybody in a cap and gown graduates, gets a diploma, but not everybody graduates magna cum laude. As he said, some people graduate magna cum laude. Other people graduate laude. How come? But they all graduate, right? You can graduate with a C minus. And if, let me tell you something. I love the wonders of medical science, but is everybody sitting down? Half of all doctors, maybe all of yours, finished in the bottom half of their medical school class. Some of them just barely passed, okay? Very important, we do not overlap or separate the connection between faith and works. The works Jesus will look at in Sidney's life or in Deborah's life will be the fruit of their salvation. It's not the basis. Good works are not the root. They are the fruit, okay? That's the big principle, Really important. Uh, if you're doing the right things for the wrong reasons, I would call those bad, good works. And those include all kinds of otherwise totally legitimate things like going to church, being involved in church activities and functions. And the thing is, your level of involvement may impress human eyes, including pastors, including mine. I really appreciate when people show up consistently, have a good attitude, and kind of jump through our hoops. But only, you're never going to impress God showing up, trying to impress people with how religious you are. Uh, the flip side is also true. People who do all the same things as the guy trying to impress Pastor Brad or, or Elder Dale, the guy who comes totally wanting to please God, will often be taken advantage of because some people just show up and say, how can we make it better? And we don't care if we have to teach every Wednesday night, even though we ought to have more people volunteering to help on Wednesday night than we've been praying that for like six months. And now I'm saying, please just think about doing that for the right reasons, not to impress me. Although you will impress me if you volunteer to help them on Wednesday nights. But uh, if that's why you're doing it, a lot of times people won't notice. In fact, the more consistent you are, the less they notice. But it's real. So you don't get burned out because you're not doing it to impress other people. That's so, so important. Okay, let's look at the examples here. So that's the big principle. First he talks about giving, giving alms, which was gifts that would be designated to the poor or needy that were functioned or funneled through the temple or the synagogue. So this wasn't just United Way, if you do that, or Salvation Army. Uh, and I've been involved in both of those things and have given to both those things. But this would be gifts given to the church that helps people specifically for need, for financial or other needs. He says, so when you give alms, when you are giving anything financially to the church or uh, for good reasons. Don't sound the trumpet in front of you as the hypocrites. He's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, the professional religious people who are the most religious people in the culture. Doing the synagogues and in the streets so they may be honored by men. Notice that, Steve. The reason they're giving this money to the poor is so that other people will tell, will talk about how great they are, how spiritual they are, how generous they are. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full right now and whatever nice thing people say about them. That's not rewardable. In God's sight. But when you give, don't do it to generate publicity or fanfare. Don't draw attention to yourself. It uses a hyperbolic parable. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So your giving will be in secret. won't be promoted. God will see it. Some people might see it. And that's always nice when they do and say something nice about it. But that's not motivating you. But God, he sees what's done in secret. He will reward you, right? Now, 
sounding trumpet there uh, isn't hiring Herb Alpert to walk you in front into the church building every day. He was a famous trumpet player. Uh, but this is a diagram of a trumpet. More importantly, notice the uh, the front part where the sound comes out is called the bell. I did not know that. You learn stuff when you come to church. Uh, in the synagogue and in the temple, in the temple they had many boxes. Now, now, if you've ever bragged about us being more spiritual than everybody else in town because we don't pass an offering plate, listen, just having a box doesn't fix the problem. We do have a box. Uh, your giving is fully tax deductible. Okay? TBF is a, I'm not a prophet. James is not a prophet. He's not even a son of a prophet. So all your giving is fully tax deductible because we're a non-profit organization. But just having a box as opposed to offering plates doesn't solve the problem because the Pharisees, in the, in the top of this offering box for, for alms in the synagogues and in the temple, had what was called the trumpet on top of it. It was a metal box with a metal trumpet. It looks like the front of a modern trumpet. And the point was, if you threw paper money in there, it wouldn't make much of a sound. If you put metal money, as we used to say when Cooper was little, I had this, this uh, jar of, of pennies that are his, and we poured them all out of the bed, and I said, Cooper, he's like two years old, which one do you like the most, paper money or metal money? Metal money. He liked metal money. So we call it metal money. The Pharisees were so jerky when they would go once a month and give their monthly gift uh, to the poor through the temple or, or the synagogue. Number one, I'm sure they waited till there were a lot of people in line. That's for sure. But what he's talking about here is rather than dropping a $100 bill or $1,000 bills in there, they would take the $100 bill to Bank First, which is a fine bank, multiple locations throughout Duncan and other places. Uh, they would convert their $100 bill into 10,000 pennies. Did I do the math right? And which is pretty heavy, you know. I probably should have done that for demonstration purposes next time, okay? And then it would slowly and as loudly as possible pour the 10,000 pennies into the trumpet and it would make a loud, profound, prolonged noise so everybody would not miss the fact they were giving $100 to the poor. Ain't he great? And so isn't it weird? This giving for them wasn't giving, it was buying. It was buying good publicity. And uh, that doesn't fly with God. It impresses people, but it does nothing uh, as far as God's concerned. In fact, Jesus says, unless you abide in me, you can do nothing that's spiritually vital. And he's interested in spiritually vitality, not just religious activities. The religious guys that killed him, if you remember. It wasn't the Romans, it wasn't the Jews, it was the Romans that actually crucified him, but the Jews set him up, the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, many Jews came to faith and still do. That's giving. Now let's talk about praying. Verses 5 through 15 is the general principle, do the right thing for the right reason, don't do it to promote yourself and impress people, and that applies when you pray. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love phileo. They get lots of warm fuzzies to stand in public prayer deals in front of the temple, in front of the synagogue, pray in the synagogue services on the street corners. Can you imagine that? Out loud so everybody could hear how marvelous their prayers were so that they could be seen by men, not communicate with God. They want people to notice how spiritual they are. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your, King James says, closet. So for a long time, people were going into their closed closet to pray. The Greek word just means private room. 
Any room that doesn't have anybody else but God in the room will work. It can be your bedroom, a closet, your dining room, your office, anywhere. Go into a private room. I will say, this is my iceberg theory of prayer. Icebergs, only 10% are above the surface. Ask the captain of the Titanic about that. You know, if you can find him. 90% below the surface. I would say, even if you stay for a second hour and pray with us and come to Wednesday night religiously for the right reasons and pray with us out loud even sometimes, that ought to be a small fraction of your prayer life, right? Uh, sometimes I've heard preachers other than me say, based on the way some people pray in public, they're obviously making up for lost time. I mean, as Jesus says, longer prayers are not necessarily more effective than short prayers, especially in public. They ought to be shorter rather than too long, in my opinion. So you have time for sermons to go long, Ron. So that's the reason you don't pray very long, right? Don't pray to give praise for yourself. That's one of the functions of prayer. So don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray in public to show off. But when you, this is not saying you can't have public prayer. Jesus has public prayer. The epistles tell the church to be involved in public prayer. There's a need for that. We've woven that into the very fabric of the church, as you know. And a lot of churches do that. But the vast bulk of your prayer life ought to be just you, one-on-one with God. Go in your inner room, close the door, pray to your Father who's in secret, who's invisible, who's a spirit, and your Father who sees what's done will reward you, right? It's going to be rewardable, Janice, because that's a good, good work as opposed to bad, good work. And when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetition. Don't just memorize stuff and just rattle off a bunch of words. As the Gentiles do, they suppose they'll be heard for their many words, uh, long, long uh, memorized prayers. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So if you've got a prayer meeting and somebody wants to pray for their aunt in Cincinnati, who's in room 222 in the hospital, and in fact the room was 122, and we prayed wrong, trust me, God knows where they are. He can find them. You know, I mean, try to be accurate, but if we're praying for their heart and it turned out to be their knee, God will, I think He responds to the heart. Now, my working definition of prayer is prayer is not a crowbar, even though that often is taught by people who have big pulpit ministries. If you have enough faith, you get everything you want because God's just going to give, give, give. He's a cosmic Coke machine. Push the right buttons. He's got to come through for you. Prayer is a grace channel communication whereby believers seek and submit to God's will, knowing that God uses our very prayers as part of a sovereign plan in the working out of his will in time. So that gives you excited. You're actually involved in something that's meaningful, but you're not telling God stuff he doesn't know, nor by praying long enough you're forcing him to answer your prayer. Persistent prayer is different than just long public prayers. Persistent prayer is something Jesus talks about, and it's important, and it's a virtue, but these guys weren't involved in that. He says, so don't be like them. God knows what you're going to ask and what your needs are before you tell him. You're not informing him in prayer. Pray then kind of like this, and this is not something to be memorized and ripped off verbatim, because he just says don't do that. But when you read the prayer, it says, Our Father who's in heaven, so you're focusing not on earth but heaven and on God. Hallowed be your name, not hallowed be my name, as I'm praying. Uh, your kingdom come, not my ship come in. Your will be done, not bad McCoy's will be done. On earth, as far as I can affect that, as Dustin relates to his wife and his kids and his teachers and his church and his family. Uh, he should be praying, your will be done in that, okay? And help me to do it during and after this prayer on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our, this day our daily bread. And I always say our bread and our breath. Because the older I get, the more I realize every gift is a gift. 
And forgive us for our sins as we've forgiven our sin, our debtors. Don't lose in temptation, deliver us from evil, because it's all about you. It's not about us. Yours is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. Boom. In that prayer, which is a masterpiece, you've got adoration, expectation, supplication, confession, uh, and even contrition here. And uh, I think it's awesome. Now notice, it's so important for you not to be implacable and unforgiving as you are seeking God to cleanse your feet, like Jesus washes their feet at the Last Supper, that taken the bath of salvation, you need to wash your feet. If you forgive others their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will forgive you, not salvation forgiveness, but fellowship forgiveness. If you don't, He's not going to forgive you. You know, It's kind of like, uh, Dustin, I'm picking on you again today. It's only because you're small and helpless, and I'm so much stronger than you are. Uh, yeah. He must pray better than I do because about last night we were texting each other and I was praying really hard for OSU and it didn't work and he was praying for OU and it worked. So you must be much more spiritual than I am. You can't do that. But First Peter three seven tells Dustin and all uh, all of us husbands: husbands live with your wife in an understanding way, as with a more exquisite vessel, and grant her honor as a prayer as a fellow heir of the grace of life, lest your prayers not be answered. He's saying, if you don't treat one of the greatest gifts God's given you, which for you is angel, with consideration and appreciation, why is God going to be excited about giving you more stuff you want that you're not going to treat with appreciation and properly? So that's, that's very important. But yeah, you get all the stuff going. I could spend a whole hour on the Lord's Prayer. I'm not going to do that. I'm just saying, if you do repeat the Lord's Prayer, and I actually repeat the Lord's Prayer almost every day, but not in meaningless repetition. I kind of go line by line and expand on that. It's a great way to get started, and then you go through your prayer list and stuff like that. That's something that's helped me. But it's very important we not be implacable. And it's also important we understand what kind of forgiveness Jesus is telling disciples to pray for. This is not because we lost our salvation, because we did something bad yesterday. This is family or fellowship forgiveness. This is from the MacArthur Study Bible, one of the footnotes. Uh, this is not to suggest that God will withdraw justification, our standing as forgiven people before God, for those who have already received the free pardon, he extends to all believers. Forgiveness in that sense, salvation forgiveness, judicial forgiveness, is a permanent, complete acquittal. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Yet, Scripture also teaches that God chastens his children who get out of fellowship and disobey him, uh, believers are to confess the sins we commit as Christians, not because it's going to affect our salvation, but it affects our fellowship to obtain day-by-day cleansing. That sort of forgiveness is a simple washing from the defilements of sin, not a repeat of the wholesale, the far east is from the west kind of forgiveness we get when we first trust Christ. It's like washing the feet instead of the bath of salvation. Glady uses that uh, example because I use that all the time. Forgiveness in this lighter sense is what God threatens to withdraw from Christians. Uh, there's a difference between judicial salvation forgiveness and family, Christian life, fellow forgiveness. You've seen that before. We've gone over it in detail. I won't do that again today. But if you're taking a picture of that slide, you can do that. Or just tell me, and I can send you the slide via email, you know, 24-7, because I never sleep, I never eat, and I'm always perfect to say, oh, no, okay? Not really. Uh, let's go to the third example. We've seen giving, praying, and now fasting. And you're going, oh my goodness, fasting? I don't like that. You're talking about fast food? Uh, 
We, we have, we've had a major paradigm shift in our culture just a couple years ago. And I'm not talking about marriage definitions, although that happened too. The big one, I want to stress today and whine about a little bit, the definition for hamburger in our culture has radically changed, Ben. In my day, a hamburger met a, a meat patty made out of a cow and a bun. And then you put other things on there. Then meat, Sonic doesn't define hamburger that way. Brahms doesn't define ham, hamburger that way. Now a, a hamburger is what we used to call a cheeseburger. That's the baseline hamburger at these places. So for me, the only person in America who doesn't like cheese, and I wish I could, I wish I had a cheese allergy because then I could blame it on that. I just don't like the way it tastes. I don't like the texture. I'm not eating it. I do eat broccoli, <laughs> President Bush, but I don't eat cheese. Recently, we were at a uh, fast food restaurant. I walked up. I said, I want a hamburger and french fries, and I want my hamburger just plain, meat and bun only. And she said, okay, plain and dry, right? Plain and dry. I said, I'm good. Okay? 30 minutes later, here comes my hamburger. It's a cheeseburger. <laughs> and I said, hold up. You know, I'm always very nice, you know. At least that's my claim. I'm supposed to lie from the pulpit. I said, hey, you know, I specifically said to the lady, I wanted it plain and dry, meat and bun only. She said, you don't want cheese? <laughs> Gets worse. <laughs> About a year ago, Brahms was running this thing on Tuesdays where you get a cheeseburger combo meal on a Tuesday and get another one free. I'm all over that, baby. I'm all over that. First Tuesday, we go, go through the drive through explain, I don't want cheese on my hamburger, which it comes with cheese automatically. It's a hamburger. That's the baseline burger now. I don't want cheese on it. No problem. Debbie got her cheeseburger. I got my hamburger with nothing on it. I put my own ketchup myself because I don't trust them to mess that up. <laughs> Everything's beautiful. The next week, we make the same order through the right there. We want to get the special, but on the first or the second order, it doesn't matter, uh, no cheese. I heard these words. Sorry, we don't do that. I said, why? We don't do that. This is, it says cheeseburgers. You know, it said, it said, actually on the fine print for that. I'm like, how about Whopper Wednesday? Did you do that recently? I'm getting it all out. About two months ago, I missed last week. I didn't get to preach. Whopper Wednesday. A couple, about a month ago, some of you may have seen it. They had Whopper Wednesday and it said, for that, from it was like ten to two. It's a time, small time window for this day. I think it was their birthday as a company. It's Whopper Wednesday, okay? Ninety nine cents for Whopper. Those are the good old days, okay? So uh, came home for lunch, which I don't usually do. I'm, you know, I need the points, so I'm not going to tell her. I'm going to get her a Whopper and me a Whopper and only spend a dollar ninety eight cents, okay? <laughs> Go through long drive through line. Get up there. I want two Whoppers. Okay, two Whoppers. Go to the window. That'll be $6.07. I said, hold it. And they still got the, the signs there. I said, Whopper Wednesday. I said, you didn't read the fine print. It says, uh, for in-store in, in dining only. And I thought, you know what? Think of all the bad will you're generating for Whopper Wednesday. I mean, it's just terrible. Because... See, I read Matthew 5, 14 through 15, so I've totally forgiven them. But I don't ever say I forgive and forget. I can't forget. But I, it's not anything that important, for sure. 
Okay, here's the third example. Whenever you fast, don't put on a gloomy face like the hypocrites do. You get that. The hypocrite, someone who puts, uh, the, the, the etymology of the word goes back to the Greek and Roman theater where actors would play different roles by putting masks on and pretend to be peop- something they're not in their roles. So putting on a mask, pretending to be spiritual because you fast twice a week. In fact, the Pharisees bragged to Jesus later, hey, we fast twice a week and you people don't fast at all. Why don't you people fast like we do? They use that as a litmus test for everybody else's spirituality. That's really bad. You can have stricter scruples in scripture but don't you dare use that as a litmus test for somebody else's salvation or spirituality. That's an abuse of Christian liberty, which these guys were experts of. But he says, notice, the hypocrites fast, but they don't shave back. I guess they didn't, they didn't shave. They had beards on like, like Dustin's, which is fine in the, Greek, in the Hebrew culture. But they didn't wash their face or, or comb their hair on the days they fast so they could be seen by men as fasting. Everybody else to know they weren't eating that day. By the way, I didn't know this, but one authority says, Pharisaical fasting was from sun up to sun down. I used to think they would go 24 hours without anything. That's just, that's easy. I do that all the time. You kidding? There's no big deal. Uh, but they thought they were so much better than everybody else. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, comb your hair, brush your teeth like you would, so your fasting will not be noticed. Don't brag about it. Don't do things that will force people to notice you're doing something different that day. Um but God will see it, and he'll reward you. Boom. Unbelievable. Yeah, fasting was from sunrise to sunset, kind of like the, the Muslims do in Ramadan, when they fast during Ramadan. They're only fasting during the daylight hours, right? But something that was designed, and by the way, um, going to make an executive decision. I could do plan A, which was to finish this exposition, exposition up, and then tell you how 6-1 Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Doesn't contradict what the Lord said back in 5.16. Let your light shine before men in such a way men, people, will see your good works. How do those fit together? I'll show you next week. Okay, I'm going to shoehorn that into uh, a miracle account. So don't panic. I'm not going to go for another hour. I'm almost done here. But uh, but you got your money's worth, am I right? Uh, but you know, fasting was designed to uh, emphasize denial of uh, fleshly desire, which is totally legitimate hunger, but just say, I'm not going to just let my urges drive me for a period of time. And yet the Pharisees used it to glorify their flesh, how great they were. I mean, take a good thing and totally turn it on its head. Hey, things, including religious things, aren't good. They're neutral. Depends on who does them and how you do them, right? Are hammers good or bad? Are baseball bats good or bad? Depends on who uses them and for what, what, what reasons. Am I right? Uh, ironic, but true. Now, nobody tells you this because we want you to think you've got to be very spiritual to fast. Uh, really, the main benefit... Now, nowadays, we have fast food. We invented fast food. Uh, you can get food 24-7 through the drive-thru. Now, be careful if you want a hamburger with no cheese on it. I mean, you've got to clarify that. But uh, in the ancient world... Eating involved a lot of work. You didn't go down, especially in small villages, down to a fast food place, McDonald's. You had to find the food. And by the way, you know, uh, I was a vegetarian for a long time, not because I loved animals, but because I hated plants, and I've gotten over it. So, but uh, you got to find it. You got to kill it. That can take all day. You got to transfer it. You got to clean it. That's a lot of work. Then the wife's got to cook it. Then you got to clean out for it and get ready to go find some more. I mean, 
when you decided as a family we're going to fast every other Sabbath, you know, that frees up a huge amount of disposable time for all kinds of functions, good good family functions, spiritual functions. So, so that's a big part of the benefits of fasting. For me, when I fast, it does seem like uh, I'm able to, I don't know, I'm just more earnest in my prayers when I've got a little bit of a, a hunger pang in my stomach, just kind of close, clears the mind. But the Pharisees bragged about them doing that twice a week during the daylight hours, and they'd know that have a big, you know, big meal, got a golden corral as soon as the sun went down. And they acted like they were more spiritual than Jesus, which is never going to work, right? And downgraded anybody else, including him, for not doing their stricter than Scripture. By the way, Old Testament law is spirituality on training wheels. It's stricter than the New Testament law of love in many ways. We don't have to sacrifice animals, for example, right? And yet, in the Old Testament, which is spirituality on training wheels, with a lot of extra stuff we don't really need now that the whole point of the law, who fulfilled it, and saves us from us breaking it, Jesus has been here. How many feast days, don't say it out loud, half of you know this, how many feast days under the Old Testament law was mandated by God through Moses and the prophets for Jewish people to observe? How, how many times a year, were you, how many times a week were you required to fast? How many times a month were you required to fast? There was one fast day required by the Old Testament law. Now, was it cool to fast more often? And under certain occasions, like when they're surrounded by the Babylonians, they prayed and fasted. In the New Testament, before the disciples make big decisions in the book of Acts, they prayed and fasted. That frees up time to, to pray, and it makes you more earnest, I think, in it. But there was only one required feast day in the Old Testament law. Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes on this side, New Testament side. What was that day? Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement. When the animals uh, would be, the sins of the nation would be transferred to the animal, as it were, symbolically. The priest, the high priest would take the blood of the lamb, of the goat actually, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, which looks like a coffin, but it had the, the commandments, the Ten Commandments in there that God's looking down at, and they're broken because the people break it. Excuse me, but when blood was put on the top of that box, it was called the mercy seat, the kipper, Blood, the blood of the sacrifice interposed between the broken law and God. At one atonement was made. That was a picture of what Jesus would do on the cross. That was the only day under Old Testament law that was required for folks to fast. Okay? How many times did the Pharisees do it a week? Twice. So they're twice as spiritual than anybody else, right? Not necessarily. In fact, they weren't at all, were they, Blanche? They're going through the motions. But their heart was far from God. And Jesus is emphasizing in this big umbrella statement, beware of practicing whatever righteous good things you do before people to be noticed by them. If you do that, it's not real. And God is all about reality, not just ritual, rote, and religion, right? So as I say, we're not going to look at that today. But here's what we're going to end with. Who do you expect to get credit and praise for the good stuff you do? Do you expect you to get credit and praise? Uh, Hero of the Week was something I uh, made up uh, many years ago. I'd seen it some other, at some other church some, some, point, some point, I thought is a good idea. Uh, I, I do it by, at random. I'm not trying to exclude you if you've done a lot of great things uh, that I haven't noticed. I mean, you're going to have to let me know because, uh, <laughs> you know... Uh, just because somebody does you a personal favor, 
People do me personal favors all the time, and I kid, you're going to be hero of the week. But it's tongue-in-cheek. Just because they do me a personal favor, just because Danny Pollock came to my house and took my old grill to the dump, and I didn't have to do that, that was very nice for him in his truck, and I don't have a truck. That was very nice for me, but I don't think that made him hero of the week. I mean, you know what I mean? But look for some, catch somebody doing something right around here, then we're going to assume, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. When that happens to you, Scott, we're going to assume you're doing it for the right reasons. God will know. But I wouldn't get too impressed by myself, even if you've been hero of the week like ten times, like Dale has been, you know. Uh, now, Ron is one of our most faithful members. Uh, he's actually going to go see his mother in, in uh, October uh, for a well-deserved out-of-town respite, and he needs to go see, go see his mom. Uh, you know, boy's best friend is his mom. You know that, right? Especially big boys like you. But, uh, tall boys like you. But, uh, I mean, Ron's here like clockwork. And on Sundays, he's here before me or James. Uh, uh, quite often on Wednesdays, he's here, he's here before me or James. <laughs> uh, when's the last time you thanked him for the work and the hassle it is to keep the books of the church? He keeps the books. By the way, I don't know how much anybody gives to this church. So, if you want to violate the principle of this passage... Just walk around here like you drop a thousand bucks in there every month. I don't know any different, or five thousand. I don't know any different. I treat everybody the same, like dogs. No, I, I don't. Uh, I, I just, I, I don't trust myself. I knew this person was giving a hundred times more than this person. This person gives you a dollar. This person gives a thousand a month. I'd be real tempted to be a lot more attentive to this guy than that guy. I'm just, I'm just telling you. I'm not corrupt, you know? So I don't want to do that. God knows, and Ron knows, so, Ron, try to pretend like you don't know the need aftermath of this, or they're going to think the reason you're not talking to them is because they're yeah, out of line there. But, uh, uh, but you know, how much you give isn't as important as why you give it. Jesus looks at the little lady who gives two pennies when these other guys are pouring in, you know, their $1,000 in penny increments into the tank there, and he says she gave more than anybody. She came from her whole heart, you know, so that's important. So, let's take this to heart. James, one of James's uh, favorite commentators, I think we've talked about this guy. He's a pretty famous evangelical commentator. His name is D.A. Carson. He's a good pastor's son. Sometimes, hey, James, Jack and Ethan may be okay. You know what I mean? Sometimes pastor's kids turn out okay. Uh, he says about the essence of this passage, the public versus private contrast. Don't do the good things you do publicly just to promote yourself, just to get people's praise is a good test of one's motives. And that's the whole essence of it. It's your motives that count. The person who prays more in public than in private, I'd say may reveals, but he just says categorically, reveals that he is less interested in God's approval than in human praise. Okay, I hope not too many of you are feeling me step on your toes, but if you think about it, you've probably all done this. And, and like I said, James and I are more tempted to probably do it than some people because we've got to jump through certain hoops. And I would say... You know, I don't do anything in my mind that's not worth doing, even if only one person's affected or only, only two people show up. But if we do a lot of stuff, especially publicly services, only two people show up for, we probably ought to change the time, change the content, change something, because uh, uh, there's probably other things we could do to help more people. So let me ask you this question as we conclude. Do you do good deeds because you are hoping others might notice how good you are or do you do good deeds because, I'm assuming you're a believer doing this as a fruit, not trying to earn your salvation through good works. Or do you do good deeds because you are focusing on how truly great Jesus is? That's what ought to motivate you. 
right? And so, Jan, you were in no no little situation when you kind of started the uh, Kindred Community Dinner. That I remember you thinking we could do one here after the after the first one. I said, this is going to blow up in a good way. We're not going to be able to put them all in this building. It's not big enough. Didn't I say that? See, sometimes I'm right. Uh, but the cool thing about that, you know, if only five people had come and they really needed that encouragement, it's worth doing. Uh, but uh, I think Jan's dedicated the proposition that God really loves and cares for widows. And let us show you, let's give you something on a monthly basis to show you out what that looks like, you know. So the cool thing about that is once you're driven that way, it's real, it pleases God, it glorifies God, it's going to be rewardable, and it doesn't really matter when others notice. Sometimes they will. And it's always nice when somebody knows you're doing the right thing and they give you a compliment, it keeps you going, and, you, and we need a little, little bit of that. But don't do the good things you're doing for that reason, because otherwise, if you don't get all the warm fuzzies, you're going to quit, or your feelings hurt, and all this kind of stuff. And that says, hey, you know, you're, you're too worried about the, you know, the approbation of other people. You, just, you can't do that, man. They'll break your heart <laughs> if you're depending on that. Forget it. Let's do the right things for the right reasons, for the right person. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, please do spiritual heart surgery on each one of us, including me and James, uh, as, you know, as paid clergymen that love you and do this because we feel like you called us to do it. But for each one of us, and help us not think, well, I know some preacher we used to know in another church that did this, or I know my neighbor or my spouse. And help us to do spiritual heart surgery on ourselves. Help us, as Jesus says, to forgive others for the little slights and things they've done for us. But help us to really take this to heart and just examine our motives. Even why, why are we here right now? Are we here just for the social aspects or impress somebody for being here or make a business connection? Are we here because... The first significant thing we want to do on the first day of the week, when you give us a whole new week, is on the day of the resurrection, get together with believers of like mind and practice for fellowship, worship, prayer, and promote the gospel, right? So that's why we're here, Lord. I I hope, and I hope that you will uh, help us to uh, use this as a very important diagnostic test on the level of our real spirituality, because the heart of true spirituality is doing everything we do to please you because of how great you are, not to get people to be impressed by how great we are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.